Well, we come tonight to continue in Psalm 119. Turn in your Bible to Psalm 119. This evening we will be working through verses 153 through 160. 153 through 160. And as we are so close to wrapping up our study in Psalm 119, let me remind all of you the way we've been operating with this Wednesday evening format. We open in a word of uh, praise to the Lord, singing to him. We come to then study this passage tonight. Then we will open it up for a time of Q&A, trying to think through together in light of this account uh, some application questions that we can all be edified and helped and uh, further equipped in light of our study. Okay? Psalm 119, let's ask for the Lord's help before we dive into our account tonight. Father in heaven, we bow before you in all of your glory and majesty, you the infinite, eternal, triune God, and who are we but humble creatures of the dust, sinners, Lord, and yet loved by you, cared for by you, through your Son, redeemed, welcomed in. Lord, we have every reason to praise you. We thank you that this Wednesday evening we can begin this new year looking to you and your word. We ask that tonight you would be our guide and teacher, that no matter what has taken place this week, that now this evening you would give us strength, that you would help us, Lord, to focus our, our eyes, even the eyes of our heart, to behold you and your glory by means of this psalm. So guide us, Lord, tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 119, verses 153 through 160. Our study tonight is entitled, See Me, Revive Me. You see that there on the screen. I don't know if you've had ever the opportunity to attend a musical concert or a symphony. This last weekend, my wife and I, celebrating our anniversary, were able to attend one of the local symphonies here in Winston-Salem. A wonderful opportunity over at the Reynolds Auditorium. There, the symphony, the evening was entitled Enchanted Waters. Putting that image in your mind. And there were three musical selections by different composers all brought together that fit that theme. The first especially by Debussy, a piece entitled La Mer, The Ocean. That in this one piece, with its three different movements, as you would sit and listen, how, how wonderful it was and how interesting it was to hear this incredible orchestra play these pieces, and as you're sitting there, the listener, to begin to, by means of hearing, even visualize the ocean, to see the waves, uh, to see the light reflecting off of the water, all again by means of just musical instruments. Wonderful and incredible. And then in the third and final piece by another composer, uh, it was originally about uh, a waltz, but again, as you, as you listened and even the conductor explained at the beginning, the, the rising, the flowing, the, the ebbs and flows, just an incredible piece, you could begin to take in and visualize the scene of the water and the waves all rolling about. 
Art has that ability. Where you can even, with a musical composition like that, begin to grasp even the way that all the the instruments come together, maybe even picking up the pace or the volume increases, the themes introduced at the beginning, all being brought back up at the end. You there can begin to pick up you're soon reaching the end as it begins to crescendo. We have something like that taking place in the account before us tonight. Again, not a, a musical composition per se, though we are in the Psalter, these were originally sung. But even in Psalm 119, as we're so close to the end, in our account tonight, you can begin to pick up as uh, one commentator put it, there's a sense of urgency in this account. Another commentator said, the nearer that this psalm draws towards its end, the more important does the psalm become. Where Spurgeon said it, this account here, it's, it's a pleading passage meaning we can begin to pick up the intensity as the psalmist is soon approaching the end. Again, we're in Psalm 119, this extended study, the glory of God's word, 22 stanzas, each written according to the Hebrew alphabet. For us tonight, we're in stanza 20. You see the heading at the top of the psalm, Resh. Every verse in this section uh, eight total, all beginning with this Hebrew letter. And again, as Spurgeon said, a pleading passage. We pick up the intensity, the emotion, as the psalmist is soon reaching its end. And what is it that grabs his attention and that he keeps uh, circling back to the theme woven throughout our account? It's out of revival. How interesting in God's providence, this is where we find ourselves resuming our study in a new year, focusing tonight on revival, personal revival. You maybe think back to 2023, who knows how the year went for you, but as you approached the end of the year and then are looking forward now to the beginning of this year, perhaps personally, you've adopted some commitments and resolutions Ways you hope to go about things different in 2024 than you did in 2023. Taking that even into the Christian life, perhaps there are commitments that you're seeking to live out and give yourself to in this new year. How appropriate then. Maybe some of those fresh on the mind tonight. Maybe in this new year, wanting to give yourself more wholeheartedly to prayer and seeking God. Maybe in this new year, wanting to give yourself more faithfully to evangelism and simply being an instrument to tell others the good news of the gospel. Maybe this new year, you're hoping in a new way uh, or even a renewed way to give yourself to the reading of Scripture, maybe even memorizing Scripture. Listen, each and every one of those all come and flow out of the need for personal revival. I do believe under God's help tonight, we will be helped by this account. 
Let me read through the entirety of it. We want to point out just a few things that set the stage then for us to walk through it. But here tonight, Psalm 119, verses 153 through 160. Again, under this heading, the Hebrew letter, Resh. The psalmist writes, Look upon my affliction and rescue me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great are your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. I behold the treacherous and loathe them because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The sum of your word is truth in every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Psalm 119, 153 through 160. Now, did you note, did you see even in your Bible three times the psalmist speaking very explicitly of revival? How he frames it in that of an urgent request. Revive me, he says, in verse 154. Revive me, he says in verse 156. Revive me, he again says in verse 159. Three times woven throughout. But note as well in verse 153 how it begins when he says, Look. And then drop down to verse 159. The New American Standard says, Consider. Same word, it's that of looking or even seeing. We'll bring out the significance of it in a moment. As if bookends, asking for God to look upon him, to see him, and then three times woven throughout, revive me. We pick up from that then that this is what the psalmist is clued in on. This is what he's giving attention to. Thus, that's what we give our attention to tonight in this section. For taking notes in this psalm, in this section specifically, it's as if there's a threefold prayer for personal revival. And again, to bring them together, we're going to tie these key words in even into our outline. The first element of this prayer tonight, the threefold prayer, it's as if in verses 153 and 154, he cries out to God, see my inward anguish, revive me. See my inward anguish, revive me. What exactly is he getting at here? Again, we don't know who wrote this psalm. We're not even sure of the exact setting that prompted this urgent prayer. And yet, it is an urgent prayer. Eight times in this section alone, 
He offers up these strong requests, these imperatives to God. And not only that, just in the first two verses, five of them appear. Again, that's where we're picking up the the urgency, the, the swell and the crescendo in this psalm. Again, look down at your Bible. Do you see all five of them just in these two verses? He says, look upon me, look upon my affliction, Rescue me, plead, redeem, revive. Are you you grasping that tonight? The, The intensity of this psalmist, whatever the situation might be, it was so pressing upon him that urgently he looks up to God, he cries out five times these requests in just the two verses. But even as you put them all together, you're beginning to pick up something was so going on outside of him that inside the psalmist, oh, he was struggling. He's wrestling over these things. That's why we use the word there, inward anguish. On the inside, again, the imagery of the ocean and the seas, it's stormy, it's windy. There's a lot going on inside. He says, look upon me, rescue, plead, redeem, revive. Oh, psalmist, what's going on here? Well, he says, look upon my affliction. Again, something outside of him has been put upon him. We already heard as we read through this section, and we'll see in a moment, clearly there are some enemies that are directing their opposition against the psalmist. He is the subject of intense persecution. And as he is feeling that, again, this psalmist is not some robot. He's not some automaton just parodying out biblical truth. He's living through this. He's the one wrestling over this. Such that he looks up to God And he will even cry out, look upon my affliction. Again, I said that's a key word. You could also translate it, see. See my affliction. It's a very unique word that he uses here. And likely the psalmist is very intentional using this word because it's a word in the Old Testament that is so rich in its significance, going all the way back In fact, if you flip over in your Bible to Genesis chapter 22. Do you remember the account in Genesis 22 in the life of Abraham when at last the promised son has been born and you think all is well and they're going to, you know, head off into the sunset happy as a family? Until suddenly the Lord commands of Abraham, Abraham, he says, here I am. The Lord says, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. you can imagine receiving that from the Lord. 
You've been waiting for so long with your wife for this promised son. And then suddenly God says, you need to get up tomorrow and go and prepare to offer him as a sacrifice up to me. Without flinching, without questioning, verse 3, Abraham rises early. He makes the preparations. He goes with his son Isaac and two of his servants. They journey three days to Moriah. And again, Isaac, at this point, he's, he's a grown young man, maybe even a teenager if you've studied it before. Uh, he, he's understanding they're going to offer up a sacrifice, and he's looking around and he says, Dad, um, what are we going to offer up? Where's the animal? Verse 7, my father, Abraham says, here I am, my son. Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And do you see what Abraham says in verse 8? Genesis 22, God will provide. The word he uses there is God will see. Meaning, see so as to provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And again, the rest of the account takes place, how dramatic it is, right at the very moment where Abraham is going to go all the way in obedience to the Lord. The Lord stops his hand. He doesn't offer up his son. There, God gives this ram caught in the thicket that they then offer up to the Lord. And thus that place for all time in verse 14 is given the name, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Again, literally, the Lord will see. Grasping the significance there? It's a term meaning God will so be concerned. He will see the situation. He will provide what is needed in the situation. Thus, Abraham will call this place Yahweh Jireh. The Lord will provide. Thus, going back to Psalm 119, with whatever it is that's going on, this psalmist, knowing well his Bible and knowing well the God of the Bible, cries out to him, Oh, Lord, see. See me, see my affliction. And will you not intervene and rescue me? Whatever it is he's on the receiving end of, he knows well enough he can approach God boldly, ask for divine assistance, even though inwardly he is in such anguish. And again, what does he appeal to as he makes this request to God? He says, I do not forget your law. And he's not saying to the Lord God, you owe this to me. You know, I've served you so faithfully. Uh, Come on, throw me a bone here. Get me out of this. Not that. But he is appealing, God, I'm faithfully trying to live for you. 
Certainly not perfectly, but God, I've made it my settled ambition. I've not forgotten your word. I've not departed from it. No, my life is oriented to it. It's grounded in your word. And I'm then on the receiving end of these persecutions and false accusations. But how that prompts him to go to God because he knows God sees and God cares and God can provide what it is that he needs. And even as we begin 2024, isn't it encouraging that our God is never too busy? He's never over-occupied that he can't give you help. How different this is from the way that we can be. Spurgeon said, men consider and do nothing, but such is never the case with our God. He goes further in verse 154. Again, he brings together some more requests. He says, plead my cause and redeem me. When he says, plead my cause, he's bringing in now some legal terminology as if he's on the receiving end of accusations. He's asking God, would you step in as my advocate? Would you, as it were, be my defense attorney? I'm the accused. Will you not come to my aid and plead my cause? He's calling out for vindication. Who better to have on your side than God? He even then says, and redeem me. Again, another rich Old Testament word. From this, it's related to uh, what you find in the book of Ruth, where Boaz will step in as the kinsman redeemer, the one who has the, the family tie, the obligation, loving obligation to step in and help one who is in need. He says, Lord, will you be my advocate? Lord, will you step in, be in, step in to be my kinsman redeemer? I'm being falsely accused. Will you rise up to defend me? You may not know the name of Edward Payson, but if you were to go back in American history into the 1700s and the early 1800s, many in America knew the name Edward Payson. Edward Payson was a faithful pastor in Maine, where for many years he labored faithfully. In fact, so faithfully, and what was so known about him was his prayer life. He was given the nickname Praying Payson. And if you ever read his memoir, you'll come across this time where a woman stepped in the midst of his ministry, a wicked woman, And she brought up an accusation against Payson that because of what had happened, the accusation was so made and so pressed, it seemed as if there was no way for Edward Payson to get out of it. No way around it, no way past it, no hope for escape. Just by this one accusation, it caused such scandal, it seemed as if praying Payson's 
character was ruined and forever tarnished. You read then in his memoir, Payson was cut off from all resource except the throne of grace. He felt his only hope was in God, and to him he addressed his fervent prayer. He was heard by the defender of the innocent. And in such a situation, much like this psalmist, all he knew to do was cry out to God, Will you plead my case, O Lord? And he did that. And what happened? This woman came under conviction and owned up to what she had done, admitted and confessed the whole thing was a lie and was simply malicious slander. And thus, Payson found relief. What an example that is for us. And sometimes we get caught in situations where we're quick to reach out to others. Maybe we reach out to our family members. We text them about what's going on. Maybe inwardly we so sit and stew upon it and mull over what was said And we think of how untrue or how unfair, how dare they say such things. But as we wrestle through that, do we follow this example of the psalmist and recognize sometimes we find ourselves in situations where all we can do, yea, all we should do, is first cry out to God, Lord, you see, will you not provide And be the one who defends me. And to think the psalmist here, as he says this, what he knows compared to what you and I know on this side of the cross, where you bring in some further truth that Scripture fills out to consider that we have a God who through his Son is on our side As Paul would write in Romans 8, if God be for us, who can what? Who can be against us? What accusation can truly be made against us to stick if we have a Savior who's paid for all of our sin and all of our iniquities? Well, the hymn writer would say, when Satan tempts me to what? To despair and tells me of what? The guilt within, the accusations that arise. How we sing upward, I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Bringing this together as Charles Bridges wrote, when therefore Satan accuses me, yea, when my own heart condemns me, I may look up to my heavenly advocate, plead my cause, and deliver me. Again, friend, as we start this new year, let's even have this revival in our own prayer life to consider the one we make these requests known to. It's not like we're on, stuck on the line with some customer representative who you can pick up clearly 
unfeeling and uncaring towards us. They have the script they have to stick to, and they're not really able to bring help and relief. But this God, who is our God, even with that inward anguish, he's quick to see, he's quick to help, he's quick to bring about revival, all according to God's word. That's the first part of the prayer. Psalmist moves forward now into the second part of the prayer, this threefold prayer for revival. Not only is there, uh, does he cry out, see my inward anguish, revive me. He'll move further and say, see my outward adversity, revive me. Now we get a little clearer glimpse of what's going on. Psalmist will now speak of those around him, surely bringing these accusations. They, the ones, the source of the trouble and the suffering. Where he'll begin in verse 155 with a blanket statement, salvation is far from the wicked. Those that persecute him, those who are his enemies, when the psalmist thinks of them, he understands Oh, the Lord's salvation is far from them. We might say, wow, okay, why? Well, we're told the answer. They do not seek your statutes. The psalmist understands there are some, these unbelievers who are wicked and wicked to the core, like a settled policy for them. They do not, they have not, they will not seek what God says, seeking his statutes. We think that salvation's far from them. There's no hope for them. Well, maybe we could think of it like this. For them, their undoing is their own doing because they're running from the Lord. As a settled policy, they don't seek his statutes. All of their life living in sin, as a commentator said, every act is a stride of mind more or less vigorous in departure from God. And a categorical statement here of the lostness of an unbeliever. We think how the rest of Scripture confirms that. You think of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, speaking of unbelievers, they're dead in sin and in their unrighteousness. They go according to the course and pattern of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. You think of Paul and the clear case he makes in Romans chapter 3. There are none righteous, no, not one, none who seek for God. For them, salvation is far. But even though he's on the receiving end of their hostility, again, the psalmist looks up to God. He cries out for his help and he extols, Lord, great are your mercies, O Yahweh. Your many mercies, your many compassions. And here's what's holding him up. He will further again appeal to God to revive him. To think again, this God who is so caring, so constant in his love, 
In fact, the way the psalmist writes this, often the writers of Scripture speaking of God, God is spirit. He doesn't have a body like us. God is infinite and eternal, the creator, and we the creatures. An infinite gap between us and him. To even speak of him, the writers of Scripture have to speak in a way that's brought down to our level that we can begin to grasp who God is. The psalmist here then, as he says, great are your mercies, your compassions. It's a word in the Old Testament times speaking of one's inward kidneys where there's intense feeling and emotion. Simply a descriptive way and words for us to understand, to grasp how perfect, how constant, how real God's care and concern is for his people. And in Spurgeon, how wonderful this is. He spoke these mercies, the mercies many, mercies tender, mercies great. That he could not care more. He could not love more than he already does. And whatever it is that he's on the receiving end of, he's sensing maybe he's beginning to slip spiritually. So he cries out, revive me, Lord. Revive me. Older translations use the word quicken. Simply the psalmist acknowledging, God, I need your grace. Grace to quicken and strengthen to bring back my spiritual life and vitality, that he wouldn't be clinical or stagnate in his walk. Again, maybe that's what you and I need to be praying as we start 2024, asking for God to quicken us, to revive us, whatever it is our circumstances might be. Great and many are God's mercies, though unfortunately still his enemies and adversaries, they are many. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries. And yet his commitment, he will not, he does not turn aside from the Lord's testimonies. And think about that with me for a moment. Clearly, the psalmist is so living for God and is so committed to Scripture that that has gotten the attention of these unbelievers who are lobbying their attacks and assaults upon him. And maybe he's tempted and he's in a situation where if he just eased up in his commitment to God, maybe he toned it down a little, they'd back off of him and find someone else to pick on. He might be tempted to compromise. Have you ever been in a spot like that? Wondering, should I keep up this commitment to God? Or should I relax my walk spiritually? Oh, how, how wonderful this is. He does not turn aside from his testimonies. 
And life for us is so unique compared to many, many believers throughout the ages. Even compared to the many believers we find recorded in the Bible. I mean, at times maybe we've had intense persecution, but, but is it like some of the things believers have had to walk through in Bible times? Take someone like Noah. God gives him this command, Noah, build an ark. It's going to rain up to that point. Had it rained? No. Maybe Noah's even wondering, Lord, what exactly is rain? But God gives him this command, go build this ark. Many years he's about that task. In pure faith, taking God at his word, obeying what he says. You read in, was it First Peter, giving the editorial comment that Noah, while he's doing this, he's a preacher of righteousness. He's pleading with those around him on the earth. Judgment is coming. Flee and be saved. And yet finally, when the floodwaters come, how many make it into the ark? Very small amount. Have you ever taken time to think all those years, likely the ridicule he would have received? The endless mocking Noah was subject to, and yet he persevered, and he committed himself to God, and by faith took him at his word. You ever think about Jeremiah the prophet? I mean, maybe all we know of him is he's given the nickname the weeping prophet. His circumstances are so sad. What a difficult and challenging ministry. He, being the instrument to deliver to the nation, the Lord is going to bring about judgment. How regularly he is giving word that judgment is coming, and yet the king and the nation will not listen to him. Not that long ago, we were reading through it with our girls, with our, our Bible time at night. We read the account where God tells him, give the word to the people and to the king that judgment's coming. He gives that word. Those around the king, they don't want to hear that message. So what do they do? They take Jeremiah and they throw him into a mud pit. What was that mud pit like? Apparently so deep that he has no way of getting out of it, and it takes multiple men soon bringing a rope to haul him out. Can you imagine yourself at the bottom of that mud pit? I mean, it's damp, it's moist, it's dirty. The exposure to the elements, I mean, we have time in the ocean, time in a lake, and we begin to see, oh, I've been in the water a little too long, it's messing with my skin Imagine you being stuck in a mud pit like that. The very people who should be on your side are the ones who threw you into that pit. Take Daniel as a young man ripped away from his family, all that he knew, brought to a foreign land, 
And in the early chapters of Daniel, essentially told, we will brainwash you to make you like us. And yet as a young man on the receiving end of that persecution, he remains faithful to the Lord. And then what happens again in his old age? New regime, new leaders, same issue. Coming up with some way to get him in trouble. Maybe one more. We think of the Apostle Paul. Where you read at the end of Galatians, I bear on my body the brand marks of Christ. Or maybe we ask Paul, Paul, what is it, what, what has it cost you to be a Christian? All Paul would have to do would be to lift up his shirt and show us his back. Or do we see deeply scarred tissue from the many beatings he received, the cost of following the Lord? All who desire to live godly will be persecuted. We'll have that outward trouble. We need then the Lord to revive us. He goes further. He thinks about these unbelievers. And he says pretty strongly, I behold the treacherous and loathe them. Because they do not keep your word. Maybe here we're given a little bit more insight into who they are. The word they're treacherous It's speaking of those who are unfaithful. Maybe those who have broken the covenant, covenant breakers. They've been in the covenant community. They should be walking with the Lord. And yet they've turned aside. They've scorned his word and have adulterated themselves. He thinks of them. He's grieved but even filled with this holy anger and hatred. He loathes them because of what they've done to him. No, no, not his personal agenda, but because of what they've done against the Lord. They do not keep your word. They see the way God's dishonored, ignoring God and ignoring his word, and he's so bothered inside. See my inward anguish, revive me. See my outward adversity, revive me. Third and finally, see my upward assurance, revive me. Again, just these first two prayers, we'd think, man, things are pretty bleak here. Is there any hope? And the good news for a believer, yes, there is always hope. He looks up to the Lord as he makes known these requests, and he knows quite confidently he has God and he has God's word. And that's what he banks upon. That's what he clings to. He again says, consider, see, Lord, take special concern how I love your precepts. 
Again, this is the the compliment, the other side of that other hatred he just mentioned. He hates what God hates, but oh, he loves what God loves. And he looks upon all that God commands, far from viewing them like a burden, far from viewing them like a killjoy. He says, I love them. How often that's been repeated all throughout this psalm. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. This is what Jesus would say later in John 14. If you love me, you will do what? Keep my commandments. He's living out Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all that is within you. All your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do we not admire his his resolve and commitment here. And again, third time, just in this section, revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness, your loyal, faithful, reserved love for your people. He's acknowledging he needs God's help. He knows that God will help him, and yet he continues to make this request known. That's what he has in God. And then consider what he has in God's word. What a statement that ends this section. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. And the psalmist thinks about his Bible And he considers what it is that God has said. He says the sum, literally the head, meaning the chief characteristic of God's word, is that it is true. And not just the whole, but even every one of your righteous ordinances. It's everlasting. Meaning God's word is eternally true, eternally reliable, eternally trustworthy, eternally right, eternally accurate, eternally relevant. He says, thy word is true. As a few commentators said on this passage, the first thing he spoke, speaking of God, was true, and so was the last. From Adam to Moses, from Moses to Christ, from Christ to the present, from the present to the end of the world, thy word is true. Thus, it is never commended too highly. It is never trusted too implicitly. It is all faithfulness. It is light without darkness. It is life and spirit. Spurgeon said there's not one single mistake either in the word of God or in the providential dealings of God. The Lord has nothing to regret or to retract nothing to amend or to reverse. 
That's what God's word is. That's what he clings to. That's what he continually asks God. Revive me, Lord. See me. See my situation. And revive me. Maybe you're familiar with the scene from Pilgrim's Progress, how wonderful that book is and how it captures so well so many experiences in the normal Christian life. The scene early on where Christian comes across hill difficulty, we have the scene where it says he went from running, running to going, going to clambering, clambering on hands and feet. Bunyan painting the picture there. Sometimes in the Christian life, we go from moments where we're running, running to then walking, walking to simply crawling, crawling on our hands and our knees. Sometimes in life, we are in circumstances that are hill difficulty. But then Bunyan says, the Lord of the hill put an arbor that even as this pilgrim climbs up in such need, he goes to the arbor where he's able to have refreshment for his weary soul, where he then takes out the scroll and reads over it and finds comfort. Now, starting 2024, perhaps a good image for us with whatever the year is going to hold, that the Lord would revive us and help us, that we'd be faithful to him. Why don't we pray, and then we'll move into our time of discussion. Lord, thank you for our study tonight. Again, we walk away from this, Lord, understanding there's never any coasting in the Christian life. In just a moment, Lord, how often we can be on the receiving end of real persecution. And even amidst that, we acknowledge our own heart is so prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Thus, the regular prayer, Lord, that you would revive us Give us grace, O Lord. Show us your glory that our love would be strengthened, our faith would increase, our hope would be more settled and sure. That as we're with our brothers and sisters in Christ week in and week out, that together, Lord, we'd run this race of faith you've set before us. O Lord, revive us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.